Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Welcome back for another episode of Opto Sessions. I'm Hayden Brain, and today I'm talking to Chris Kimball, founder of Kimball Charting Solutions, an all-round technical analysis expert. With an archive of charts committed to memory dating back to the 1700s, spotting repeating patterns and likely outcomes in current markets is where Chris has made his name. Did overconfidence in dumb money precede this market crash? Can we use crowd theory to understand pandemic-induced volatility? And which sectors most interest Chris if the market recovery holds? You'll hear all this and more on today's podcast. Hi, everyone. Today, we're lucky to be joined by technical analysis pioneer Chris Kimball. Having graduated with a business and psychology degree in 1979, gaining his securities license just a year later, Chris first came to prominence when Rydex noticed his accounts were at all-time highs in 98, despite a serious bout of volatility. Then, having sold his own financial practice in the mid-2000s, Chris started Kimball Charting Solutions, a pattern analysis subscription service where he specializes in identifying repeating patterns that occur at pivotal market turning points. Having forged an impressive profile among the global trading community, Chris is one of the most respected voices on StockTwits, and his analysis is frequently featured by publishers including Investing.com, CNBC, Bloomberg, Seeking Alpha, and many more. Hello and welcome, Chris. Hello, Aiden. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. How, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Um, and I'm uh, very excited to be here. It's an honor. Great stuff. So um, first of all, I just wanted to uh, cover your background, Lucy, for anyone that might not have heard of you. Um, and uh, my first question would be then, when and where did you first start trading? Well, I, I graduated, uh, as you said earlier, Hayden, in uh, December of 79. And I um, was approached by a company to open up what they called a financial planning business at the time, Hayden. And uh, I, I've got to say that that term was rather unknown in uh, in 1980. But they said it, it could be it could be a a good futuristic business endeavor. So uh, I I gave it a try, and so I opened up my fan, uh, my financial planning practice in February of. Uh, 1980 and uh, don't know a lot now but I sure didn't know much then but I, I, I gave it the old college try and, and uh, opened the business and and here we are it's hard to believe 40 years later yeah interesting so um, I, I read that you um, and I mentioned it in my intro as well that you were trading mutual funds via Rydex uh, investments in in the 90s um, could I just sort of uh, get a bit of clarification on, on the sorts of accounts you were trading? Were you, were you trading your own money at that point as well as uh, other people's and institutional money? Great question, Hayden. And I'm going to back up just a second that, as I shared, I started in 1980 and it's hard to believe today. But when I got in the business, Hayden, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 1,000 and it had been at 1,000 15 years earlier. So it wasn't a very impressive uh, endeavor or to go talk to somebody about stocks at that time because you know they it they just hadn't done well for a decade and a half and the thing that was doing well was gold at the time I got in the business it was 800 an ounce interest rates were double digit um, after opening my business I got my first mortgage in 1983 head Hayden and it was a 12 and a half percent fixed at the time and uh, so 
I was fortunate. Uh, it, it always helps to get lucky that when I got into the business, that was about the time that the Dow decided uh, and the major stock indices to break away from their sideways channel that had lasted 15 years. So I was fortunate that uh, uh, to preach the idea of buy and hold, which I didn't have anything with inventing, it worked extremely well um, early on in my business and it continued to work well and well for years. And so when you mentioned the Ridex funds, uh, how those came to be, it was actually in the late 90s. Uh, I was fortunate that um, my mentor was a gentleman by the name of Sir John Templeton, which founded the Templeton Funds. And uh, I became a top producer with their organization because I, I really loved his consistent, consistency of performance. Even during the flat market from 65 to the early 80s, Hayden, he averaged 15% a year in his Templeton Growth Fund. So that really impressed me that he did so well in a flat market because it was a global fund. And uh, where my life really changed was meeting him. But the biggest thing was in the late 90s, uh, he, he said something to me that actually depressed me at the time. Hayden, he said, Chris, I'm going to give you numerous reasons why I think the market will at best be flat for the next 15 years. So if you can imagine that uh, you were preaching buy and hold on a regular basis that had worked, and then one of the world's most successful investors is saying, well, what you're suggesting will not do well for your customers. Uh, I had to then come up with some different type of ideas. Now, it didn't mean that Sir John was going to be right, but I sure had to uh, uh, put a lot of faith and trust. And, and I came back, uh, we were in the Bahamas at the time. That's where his global offices were. And I came back to Kansas kind of depressed. And so that's where I started Hayden, um, doing a lot of work on speeding up my knowledge of technical analysis and moving my customer's money over to the Ridex funds. Because at the time Hayden, there was no, uh, ETFs that had been invented yet, but Ridex was the, uh, originating, originating company of the long or short mutual fund complex and that you could trade within their complex. They didn't raise an eyebrow on frequency and they didn't charge you for going back and forth. Right. Yeah, I see. Um, so, I mean, it, it obviously works then you were, you were able to outperform during a, a serious bout of volatility uh, around about 98, I believe. Um, so, so could you then dig into what it was that you were doing differently to the rest of the market to achieve that outperformance? Well, what I've done is I, Hayden, I kind of a uh, great question. I took off my buy and hold hat and by the late nineties, uh, I was able to convert my book of business over to Ridex, but it really took three more years um, from the 2000 top to really show that it paid off. And so I didn't want to experiment with my customer's money, Hayden on uh, technical analysis. I still felt fairly fresh in it, but the one thing I felt like I could do was apply moving averages that if Sir John was right, that if the market was going to struggle, I felt comfortable that, well, then the markets would probably be below moving averages. And if they were, I'd do a combination of cash and inverse funds. But what if Sir John was wrong? Well, if he was wrong and the market kept going higher, I'd just remain on the long side. So it took until 2003, as you mentioned, when the Ridex started noticing because the S&P had fallen 50%, um, 
you know, they were keeping track of everybody's accounts, but they wondered why our accounts were at all time highs. And so it was through the application of essentially the moving averages that helped me tremendously through that time period that uh, as many people held through the 50% decline, we not only didn't hold, we actually preserved capital and then scored on defense by owning their inverse uh, mutual funds. Sure. Okay. That's, that's interesting then. I mean, you must have got to grips with the technical analysis pretty quickly then. I mean, they asked you to um, embark on a 60-city tour of, of the U.S. teaching and uh, technical analysis. So I, I guess, was, it, was that the first time you taught technical analysis to other people? It was, Hayden. Um, I think they, uh, they thought I was smarter than I was. <laughs> but I, I, uh, um, I thought it was a great opportunity. Uh, you know, all I, I didn't do anything highly sophisticated in the technical analysis world. Hayden, I just, as you know, the um, moving averages have been around for well over a century. And that's one thing I felt confident in is that from a mathematics perspective, if I used a combination of moving averages and that was kind of the, the little unique thing that I did. And, but if the market was below the average, we'd, you know, we'd get out of the market and then we'd short with some of it. And uh, then we would, write it for as long as it uh, it panned out and you know for moving averages the period uh, Hayden between 2000 and 2003 was was very clean you know it, it had some counter trend rallies but for the most part uh, it it didn't collapse the 50 percent at once but it just continued to erode and erode and erode and as you know uh, during that time frame uh, the Nasdaq fell 90 percent in value so that was a really a helpful uh, short, you know, during that time, and uh, I was I was honored that they asked. Um, it was a, a very taxing uh, time period because uh, that much traveling in a ninety day window. I have to humbly admit there was a few times I I forgot what city I was in because they were happening so fast. And uh, but it was a great endeavor to meet people and just try to show people how you could do something different from buy and hold and be productive with assets. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And then, so I, I guess on, on the back of that success, then you, you sold your all financial practice in the 2000s, I believe, to concentrate on this teaching side of things. W would it be fair to say that teaching is your passion? Well, in a way, that's kind of what we're doing today, as I love sharing. Um, when I found myself kind of overwhelmed, Hayden, I was still trying to run my practice. I was selling um, signals to a, a company that managed pools of money and uh, variable annuities in the, the tax-sheltered annuity complex. Uh, and they, I was doing this traveling, and I felt like I was stretched uh, way too thin. So I went to Sir John, and I said, you know, if you were me, what would you do? Because I just I couldn't do it at all, Hayden. And so he really simplified my life. He said... Um, you know, he was a, a very devout Christian and he said, you know, Chris, if, if all of us do the right thing, God will put plenty of bread on your table. So forget that part. So he posed the question, would you rather help say 250 people, the amount of customers I had in my practice, or would you potentially like to help thousands of people? And so I chose the latter, uh, not about the money, but just to try to help people around the world. And, and um, you know, I didn't know how 
um, you know, Tom Friedman wrote the book, Hayden, uh, the world is flat. And it was about due to the advent of the internet, how ideas could just flow around the world so easily. I, I still find it hard to believe that, uh, uh, this guy, I could get this thing, uh, little research company that I've got going and now people from 162 countries around the world are, are reading some of my ideas. I, I, I guess I punish people all over the world, Hayden. <laughs> and provide them with a, with a good amount of success as well. I'd, I'd, I'd argue. Um, well, so, uh, I mean, I, that does a fantastic job of uh, rounding up your, your background and, and kind of where your mind's at now. Um, so I wanted to move on to the current market environment. Um, I've heard you reference uh, the terms dumb and smart money uh, in previous interviews, both with Opto and, and other publishers as well. Um, so could you firstly just tell us what you mean by this and how you distinguish between the two? You bet. I want to give credit to the company, and I would encourage anyone that really uh, wants to dig into sentiment analysis, Hayden, to uh, look up the company sentimenttrader.com. They are... Um, I've been a member of, I purchased their research for at least a decade now. They're a, a fabulous uh, company that Jason runs. And so I've got to give all the credit to the smart money, dumb money calculations to sentiment trader. And uh, what they've essentially done is they've uh, found a couple of groups of people, Hayden, that uh, um, for those that tend to buy at the highs, and sell at the lows, in other words, about the polar opposite of what you should do, they characterize those as the dumb money. And then um, on the flip side, the group of money that seems to have success at buying in the face of pessimism and buying low and selling at higher prices, they tend to call that group the smart money. And so they, they chart uh, these uh, groups of the smart and dumb money uh, every day and they uh, spit out percentages of how cocky or fearful is smart money or, and how cocky or fearful is, is dumb money. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess we, we can uh, tell things about the way the market will trend. For example, if there is overconfidence in dumb money, was it identifiable prior to the collapse earlier this year that there was a significant level of overconfidence in dumb money? There was, Hayden, if we could turn back the clock, like the movie Back to the Future, if we could go back to just call it January 1st, dumb money was extremely confident. It was either at the highest level of uh, the past two years, or I actually believe it was the highest in a decade. In other words, they were feeling that um, 60 to 90 days out stocks would be higher. And then at the same time, the polar opposite was taking place in the smart money. They were running for the hills. Uh, smart money, uh, I think only like 5% of smart money was bullish on the market. And on the flip side, I believe it was like 90 to 92% of dumb money was feeling like stocks would head higher. And so the stage was set. Um, uh, that's what I love about technical analysis the stage will be set, and then it seems the uh, the market seemed to look for an excuse. And so, um, you know, we'll, later on in the interview, there was multiple divergences taking place for a period of time prior to the sentiment reaching that. But what took place did not surprise me. 
to the size and the speed, I humbly have to say that did surprise me because it was a, obviously a really big move. I think it was what the, the largest or the quickest 10% decline in a hundred years. So I think that surprised most of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. Um, so then on the flip side of that, what, what does smart money, uh, money confidence mean for equity markets? And are we, are we starting to see that return now or are we some way off that? Well, smart money um, on the, uh, the first day of spring, which was March the 21st, smart money as the market was declining, started getting very, very confident uh, about that stocks were undervalued and should rally. And then on the flip side, Hayden, uh, I think there was the fewest number of dumb money people bullish in, in a decade, you know, at that same week in, in uh, the third week of March, which was essentially the first day of spring. That's We'll talk about that later on. But anyway, at, at the market lows, dumb money was really confident. Excuse, excuse me. Smart money was really confident and dumb money was heading to the hills. And that was the complete opposite of the beginning of the year. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and certainly an insight into some sentiment analysis that I wasn't particularly familiar with. So um, so I'm sure our listeners uh, will be really interested in that too. Um, I want to move on to uh, a book by Charles McKay, um, The Extraordinary Popular Delusions of the Madness of Crowds. Uh, it's, it's a pretty famous book, and I believe it was an inspiration of yours. Um, it's a, it's a piece of writing uh, about uh, crowd theory, among other things. So, so firstly, why has that book proved uh, such an influence on you specifically? Well, it all started humbly with Sir John Hayden. Um, in uh, 1995, uh, Sir John said, uh, you know, Sir John had a, um, and still does, even though he's, he's passed away, he would give away more money every year than the Nobel Peace Prize for the greatest progress of religious education. And so it, it really caught my attention when he said outside of the Bible, and, and I'm going to stop for a second, you know, he's he was known, Hayden, for being a great value investor. But this is what got my attention when he said outside of the Bible, this book I've learned and has been the most valuable to me in my multi-decades of money management which happened to be the Extraordinary Popular Delusions book. And the thing I found, and I still to this day find fascinating about it, is this book has nothing to do with valuations. It all, it's, it's just a book on sentiment. And as you said, Hayden, it's about crowd behavior. And so I made a promise to Sir John that uh, um, I would continue uh, for as long as I was in this business to share that message to other people the same message that it changed my life because uh, I assure you it's not an easy read, but it's very much worthwhile. And as a friend of mine says, you can't unlearn something. Once you get uh, the, the theory behind crowd behavior from this book in you, it just helps you so much at, at, at extremes. And, and that's why I think it's just so important at these inflection points that you can see the crowd getting really carried away one way or another. It just helps you so much, whether it's talking to somebody around the water cooler, your neighbor, a family member or whatever, it, it will always influence you to kind of hear things differently. Yeah, that's interesting. And then just building on your point about being able to read uh market sentiment at uh, inflection points we're seeing a lot of different inflection points at the moment with the historic levels of volatility in the market so 
is this uh, ability to evaluate mass market sen sentiment particularly valuable at the moment? Yes, and, and really, it's a great question and so valuable so far this year. You know, Hayden, as far as uh, when everybody was at one extreme earlier in the year, it's hard to do, but it was a, just a, a time that we walked away from the market. And uh, um, one of the things that I, I found really difficult going back to 2000, Hayden, you know, the 1990s in America was the, I believe the S&P averaged like 20% a year for a decade. And it had never done that in American history. So if you can imagine after Sir John said, hey, you ought to be kind of giving up on buy and hold, that was a hard sell to tell people to do after this great decade. And so I came up with the idea that uh, if you were a simple gardener and you had a, a, a crop of tomatoes in your backyard and that tomato became ripe and juicy and plump and it was heavy on the vine, what would most people tend to do? Well, they'd probably tend to harvest that tomato and pick it while it was ripe and juicy. But when it comes to invest, investing, Hayden, people have a hard time picking that tomato. And so that so much reminded me of early this year, you know, when the markets were doing well, dumb money was really cocky, uh, valuations were incredibly high, uh, resistance levels were in play, relative momentum was overvalued. That's a hard time to go pick that tomato. But I found in my 40 years, it's when it's that hard time, it's probably you're very close to the right time to do. And then turn the table uh, to uh, the first week of spring. You know, we had this dramatic decline. VIX index is hitting one of the highest levels in history. Uh, if you do a Google Trends uh, search report, everybody's, you know, we're, we're into a depression already or we're heading that way. You know, fear was through the roof. People are just selling stuff left and right. That was another extreme, but rarely do we see both of those polar opposites, you know, in less than 90 days, but we have this year. Yeah, so then turning to how you're investing in the in the current market, have you been able to take advantage of, of this uh, mass panic, I suppose, um, and of the recent stock market volatility? We have, um, maybe on a different call, but one of the things that we found in, in looking back, we call it the 450s, that there was four 50% declines or greater in the, the stock market in America over the last hundred years. And the one thing that we found is in the, the last three, which was 7374, 2003 and 07 to 09 Hayden, counter trend rallies, if you can believe this, all started, well, they started the first week of spring. And then these counter trend rallies lasted over the last three times, eight weeks from the low. So uh, we went to our customers on March, uh, the first week of spring, and said, we believe that if history is to repeat, that we should see a strong rally um, going forward. If history is to repeat itself, it ought to last uh, essentially eight weeks. And the thing I find fascinating is you were innocent to this, that uh, the, the rally essentially started on March the 21st. Excuse me, it was March 23rd, I apologize. Eight weeks later is this week. So we're finding it very fascinating that the rally that's taken place from a historical repeating pattern perspective was very much expected. Um, it's been dramatic, but it's just right on schedule. 
Yeah, interesting. Well, it, where where do you expect major uh, stock market or equity in indexes to move next? Are we, are we still uh, in an uptrend, or, or are we headed downwards uh, for the foreseeable future? The, the the market that's the strongest, that's really impressive, is the Nasdaq in the states. It's at uh, it's at highs for the year. It isn't quite as high as it was in February, but year-to-date numbers, it's in a positive. So uh, the decline that it had uh, during the big debacle, Hayden, did not break. If you take uh, the lows of 2010 and you just would draw a rising support line for that entire 10-year period, what was beautiful about the decline in the tech sector, it came down and touched that 10-year support line the third week of March and did not break it. So when you think of, I like getting the idea of getting in an airplane in a 30,000 foot view and uh, looking at long-term, I mean, from 10 year trends to a hundred year trends, you know, in support lines, the most impressive thing to me is that tech did not break support. But when you start looking back and like one of the charts that I shared with you is what's interesting is, uh, banks started sending a bearish divergence message in January of 2018. Now that's 24 months ago. And as we all get caught up in this back and forth we've seen this year, I think one thing that I want to remind people of is ever since the day that banks started uh, reflecting relative weakness, Hayden, the S&P has made a whopping 3% in 28 months. But then when you start looking at broader indices, as I shared with you, and, and you, you'll probably post that uh, after the interview, um, when you start looking at the New York Stock Exchange, it's down 10%. When you look at uh, small caps and mid caps, they're down like 15 emerging markets. IFA is down uh, 15 plus, almost uh, over 20. Uh, banks are down 40 over that time. So it's been really a uh, almost a bipolar market. You know, there's no doubt tech is leading things, but the more issues or the more holdings you start looking at, the less participative to the upside that we are. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And uh, just on your point that we'll be uh, sharing those charts, we'll uh, we'll put them up on the Opto website for anyone that wants to take a closer look at those. Um, so, I mean, we've we've touched on it a couple of times, but I wanted to dig into the specifics of your trading technique uh, and any key charting indicators that you might use. Um, but before we tackle the more granular techniques, um, it's certainly come across in this interview already that an overarching philosophy that you um, you hold is is this idea that chart patterns have a habit of repeating themselves um, and having just covered your thoughts on the current crisis uh, i know that you have a lot of noteworthy charts from throughout history committed to memory so i just wondered whether there was any that could help us see the see the way forward now or uh, even just perhaps mirror the prevailing trends in equity markets we're seeing at the moment well it's it's totally unproven but uh like I shared, I, I find it fascinating that, uh, you know, when, when that decline was so sharp, Hayden, uh, and valuations are still lofty, um, I wanted to see, could we be repeating the past? Because I find that fascinating. And 
that's where I re referenced earlier the 450s, the 450% declines. And so uh, that's something that has me really fascinated right now is if, and it to it's totally unproven at this time, but if history is to repeat one of these major bear markets, and the key word is if, if history repeats, I find it fascinating that the last three times, the first major counter trend rallies was eight weeks in length. And then that's where things really rolled over. And that's when the largest portions of the bear markets followed over the next couple of years. So we're essentially right there right now. And so the thing that I'm finding fascinating is um, when you look at the chart of the NASDAQ 100, which is 100 tech stocks, and you divide that, Hayden, by the NASDAQ Composite Index, which is 3,300 stocks. So this ratio has been heading higher, Hayden, for 18 years. It's moved up since the 2002 low, which essentially reflects that a few stocks are powering the tech rally. In other words, the generals are moving forward, but the troops aren't participating to the same degree. And historically, when that happens in any market, when fewer and fewer issues are propping up the market, when the market finally does roll over, it sends a really important message. So what's the odds right now, Hayden, that that ratio is at the exact same level as it was in the 2000 highs? So when I think of history repeating itself, I, I find it fascinating from a technical analysis that, that we could have a double top. I mean, tech's still leading. The tech has not acted weak. And so uh, the odds are it breaks out. But we have to sit back and remain open-minded. That is there a, a possibility that NASDAQ could be double topping 20 years later? And that's when you talk about repeating patterns, that's one I, I really find fascinating right now because – when you look at monthly chart patterns, I'm a fan of weekly charts over daily and monthly charts over weekly. And that in March and April, both that ratio of NDX divided by the NASDAQ composite index created back to back large bearish reversal patterns exactly at the 2000 highs. Yeah, interesting. I wonder whether that has uh, something to do with uh, liquidity as well. Um, sort of everyone piling into the the top names in those in those indices that you mentioned, like the Nasdaq. It, would that be fair? It sure could. You know, um, there's no doubt that the so-called Fang stocks in the states, you know, with Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, Netflix, and Google, they've had a huge influence, you know, on this. And so, one of the things I I want to be really uh, watchful of here is uh, dividing the NDX by the S&P because tech has just you know beaten the heck out of the S&P over uh, the last 10 years. If tech would start reflecting relative weakness to the large caps in the S&P, that would be a concerning message. That has not happened, but that would be something that we'd want to watch for, for a signal that if that happens, Hayden, that would suggest that we're in a counter trend rally in, in a new downtrend. Yeah, interesting. Um, certainly one for, for our listeners to watch out for then. Um, and, 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 and I would...
strategy then like like i mentioned a moment ago um and uh just uh kind of from the beginning of your process do you do you consider a specific risk reward ratio before entering a trade you know my ideal setup is a situation where a market hayden is on support the longer term support better i love if we can add to it that it's oversold that relative momentum is at one of the lower levels in years then when you combine say a sentiment trader if you can uh, get smart money to be feeling confident about the market and dumb money being concerned these are all uh setups that are ideal and uh that's when we want to be uh, more likely to uh, take an aggressive long position when these kind of pieces fall into play yeah so in terms of idea generation then how, how do you come up with an idea like that are you using sort of a specific piece of software to help you screen for emerging chart patterns i do i uh first uh have software look for certain types of patterns and uh that's the initial screen i have it do the search on uh, indices hayden and individual stocks as well and uh it's not it's not perfect, but at least it gives me an initial, uh, you know, like the other day, uh, I was looking, my favorite pattern is what's called the ascending triangle. And whether it's a stock or an index, let's say this, the stock had been hitting the hundred dollar level several times. So you would have a horizontal resistance line, but over many months, it continued to make a series of higher lows. And so that's the ascending triangle pattern that two thirds of the time assets break to the upside. And then if you take the distance of that flat top to the rising bottom, and then that's called a measured move that will give you an idea of um, how much that asset could gain. So as an example, I have then my software go and search of all the S&P 500 stocks and indices, does it find those patterns out there? And so that's my that's how I do an initial search for certain types of setups. Yeah, interesting. I, would, I was going to ask you a, a favorite uh, pattern or one that you'd had particular success with. Uh, so would you would you stick with that ascending triangle in answer to that question? I would, Hayden, because the the neat thing about an ascending triangle pattern and I had nothing to do, you know, with creating these chart patterns uh, or the history behind them. I'm just a follower of, of great people long before myself. Um, but these take place in an upward trend. So in other words, uh, there's many times I like to try to bottom fish, but the reason I like the ascending triangle is it is taking place in a bullish trend. So you're not trying to bet that something's going to reverse. You're not trying to catch a falling knife. What you're trying to do is, is find a breakout level. And, you know, we live in a world that I believe information is easy to access. Um, and so if simple me can find this breakout of this $100 level, I suspect there's other people around the world, great people like yourself that can also spot the same thing. And if there's enough people that do spot this breakout, and enough people pile on board, there's a chance that that buying pressure can help it succeed in a move to the upside. 
Yeah, yeah, interesting. So reinforcing a pattern that that already exists. Yes. Um, so um, once you've identified that chart pattern, then you you know it's kind of worthy of further investigation. What's what's the next step? Are you are you kind of overlaying any any additional uh, indicators like moving averages and things like that? Can you talk us through that process? Yeah, typically. Um if the ascending triangle has lasted a while, great question, Hayden. A lot of longer-term moving averages almost flatten out because you know if you think about it, it's been choppy for a while, even though the longer trend is up. And so then, if it breaks out, um, you, you'll start seeing those moving averages tend to curl up. And and we all know there's a a moving average community that uh, if certain assets break above those. Um, they'll also pile into the market. Um, one of the things I, while we're kind of on the moving average um, idea, Hayden, is that was the main tool that I used from 2000 to 2003. But one thing I learned a lot is, as we all know, moving averages, every, you know, every strategy, I, I love uh, this, this theme is every strategy has its weak points. And so, the strength of a moving average is if an asset is moving up, so is the moving average, it, it keeps you long. And so, and so you just, you ride that trend. And the same thing on the downside, if it's down, you, you continue to either remain outside of that asset or you short it. But the one thing that I really found fascinating is for a trend to change, in other words, if a top takes place, the moving average is not going to roll over for a while as, as you and your listeners know. And the same thing with the bottom, the moving average is going to bottom later than the market itself. And so the one thing that I found is that in these major turns, I, I actually, the, the weakness is you leave a lot of money on the table. You know, you don't get in as quick as, as you possibly could and you don't sell at the high. You know, you, you need to let the high go by. And, and it's not that that is bad, but that's where I really started getting into, I, I call a strategy of mine, the tops, bottoms, and, and no middles, trying to really find those inflection points. And so that's one of the things that we try to specialize in is finding these inflection points where key reversals can take place. And if you can spot those, as great as the moving averages are, you're going to be a little bit ahead of them. And so I've really worked hard to, to try to tie, you know, uh, when you think about, it, you look at a high on a chart, uh, Hayden, you know, the, uh, the smiley face, you know, a high on a chart is just nothing more than a whole bunch of people being happy. And a bottom on a chart is, is a sad face. And uh, so I, I just call these emotive points. And so a high is obviously an emotive point of uh, euphoria. And on the flip side, a low is an emotive point of, of pessimism. And I find it fascinating. And, and I, I don't think if I ever lived 200 more years, I'd ever know why. But it's amazing when you start tying these emotive points together, how oftentimes you can really find key inflection and reversal points. I, I, I've given up, Hayden, on trying to find out why this happens. I just have done it two or three times. You know, my wife laughs at that. It goes, you know, two or three thousand times in forty years, and it's just amazing 
how the technical analysis can work. You know, when you when you think about that, these uh, price points all come together by billions of free thinking people all over the world. I mean, um, to to do that, then, um, and uh, just to take you back to an earlier point, you me- you mentioned sort of your preference would be a, a at least a weekly chart, and uh, you might have even mentioned monthly as well. Is that the time horizon you're kind of operating on to capture these these moves? Yeah, and I love. <clears throat> Like one of the charts that I sent you that the viewers can view is the Thomson Reuters Equal Weighted Commodity Index. And so I find it fascinating right now that the index on a monthly uh, chart created a high in 1980. And then commodities lagged for, oh, you know, just short of 20 years. And then finally they started turning up. And uh, so they then. They went well above the 1980 high, people will see. But then we had the, the financial crisis, as we all know, in, in 2007 to 2009. And, and commodities did not escape the quote-unquote financial crisis. They, they got sucked into the action. But when you ask, Hayden, about monthly charts, the thing I find fascinating is, you know, when you see a monthly on a candlestick, a bullish reversal or a bearish reversal, Historically, that often means either a buying or a selling exhaustion point. And so I find it fascinating that the commodity index created a bullish reversal pattern at the 2009 lows, which was the exact same price as the 1980 high. That's almost 30 years later. But it it ended up sending a message that, uh, you know, I, I recently watched the movie of Churchill called The Darkest Hour. And I, I think of that movie when I look at that chart pattern that that bullish reversal reflected that the darkest hour was there. And then some better times took place. And so then now you turn the page forward in March and April, the Thomson Reuters Commodity Index is at the exact same level as the 2009 low. And both of those months created bullish reversal patterns at this 40-year support level. So I humbly don't know how this stuff happens, Hayden, but being an optimist, I hope that uh, this pattern is suggesting that the darkest of times through this, you know, the commodities have been something to avoid now for over a decade. I, I, I don't have a biased hat, but I would love for the world to start witnessing some higher commodity prices at this 40-year support line, because maybe it means for the most of us around the world that maybe the worst is behind us. Uh, yeah. You know, we can make money, and no matter how the, no matter how the markets go, I'll stop on this. No matter how the markets go, we can make money. But I do have to say, I'd I'd like for the commodities not to continue to collapse. Because if they do, I think we're all in for some struggling times. Not that we can't trade our way out of it, but I think the world would continue to deflate if that commodities index succeeds in taking out the 09 lows. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And actually, that uh, commodities chart that you're referencing there does make a, a particularly compelling case for for the the end to the downside uh, on on the commodity side of things, um, so we'll certainly uh, share that on on Opto on the Opto website uh, straight after the interview. Um, 
So uh, to move on to equities, uh, obviously we focus on stock markets here at Opto, so I'm sure our listeners will be particularly interested to hear, um, just from a personal perspective, you know, how, how much of your portfolio is allocated to equities right now? We're essentially just half exposured to the long side. Um, don't own any shorts of that half exposure. It's weighted towards tech. Um, as I shared earlier, the S&P in 28 months has made uh, a, a big 3%. One of the charts I also shared with you, you know, Hayden, was a chart on the what's called the Buffett indicator, which uh, takes the, uh, the value of the stock market and divides it by the overall economy. And this was one of the tools that Sir John highlighted in 1999 why he felt stocks would struggle to make a quality buy and hold performance for the next 15 years. And so I'm kind of reminded, Hayden, of Sir John's talk with me, because when we look at the Buffett indicator today, it's essentially at the same level as 2000. So, you know, this would suggest that it doesn't mean a major bull market is coming, but I think I would try to mentally be prepared for long-term below average returns based upon where valuations are. Yeah. Yeah. That, that certainly makes sense. Um, and, and before I move us, move us on to, uh, kind of some more upcoming trends to watch out for, I suppose. Um, I'll just point our listeners uh, in the direction of uh, some further detail on your trading process. We actually interviewed Chris uh, about a year ago now for a free ebook, um, And you can find that by typing Opto Tricks of the Trade into any search engine. Uh, and uh, we'll also include the URL to that free ebook in the episode description as well. So just for some further detail on the points that we've discussed just now. Um, so on to the upcoming opportunities then. Um, I wanted to dig into um, any upcoming trends that you see in global global equity markets, any particular patterns our listeners should look out for. Um, I did read a recent post of yours about banking performance on uh, KimballChartingSolutions.com um, and how it can often indicate broader market weakness. Um, Banking stocks don't look particularly appealing right now. So is, is there any more disappointment to come? What, what's your take on that? Well, they started, as we shared earlier, Hayden, they started suggesting a cautionary message in January of 2018. And when you divide the, the banking index in the States, which is BKX divided by SPX, it's, it's hard to believe that that ratio is now below the financial crisis 2009 lows. So uh, I, I suspect it has something to do with low interest rates, Hayden, you know, that banks aren't real appealing to a lot of investors. But uh, I love the adage that I heard years ago that says, so goes banks, so goes the broad markets. And uh, so that's why I, I like to focus. Uh, we started sharing um, this negative divergence with our customers well over two years ago. Uh, you know, a lot of people talked about the decline of this year, quote unquote, Hayden was a black swan. And I'd beg to differ with that because the idea of a black swan is the unexpected. Well, you know, Hollywood had, had made three large budget movies about a, a virus or a pandemic. So we don't know when, but that part shouldn't have been a surprise. And then there's been bearish divergences taking place for quite a while. And 
One of my favorite indicators for bearish divergences is junk bonds. Um, junk bonds in 1998, um, I, I like to call junk bonds, Hayden, stocks and drag. They're imitators. And in 1998, stocks, or excuse me, junk bonds started creating lower highs for two years. And then stocks peaked in 2000, and we know later they fell 50%. So junk bonds send a quality message to people well ahead of time. Hey, something doesn't look good underneath. You know, the foundation is showing some cracks. Now, at the 2007 high, junk bonds gave a bearish divergence message that lasted about eight months. And I've humbly felt like I don't think I, I would ever see again junk bonds send a bearish divergence message to stocks for for two years or more, so, you know, similar to 1998 to 2000. But junk bonds have uh, created a series of lower highs, Hayden, for the last five years. So, you know, has stocks gone up for five years? Well, they have. But there's no doubt that junk bonds are continuing to send a suspect message about long-term stock market buy and hold performance still to this day. Yeah, wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, and uh, I, I guess I want to turn our minds to uh, the more uh, positive side of things, I suppose, um, and whether, there, whether you do see any opportunity in other sectors of the equity market. I wonder whether there's a specific uh, sector or even a, an industry that, that jumps out to you. Yeah, one of the things that uh, when we go back to the favorite uh, pattern of the bullish descending triangle that we talked earlier, Hayden, uh, recently we just uh, uh, published uh, a similar looking chart of this on uh, the biotech industry. And there's two uh, key biotech ETFs in the States, which is IBB and XBI. And they both, uh, one's an equal weighted, one's a cap weighted in the same industry, but not a surprise. Both of them are creating this same pattern. They've, they've uh, created flat tops for the last couple of years and higher lows. And over the last couple of weeks, they, they're both making an attempt to break out to the upside. Similar pattern would be uh, Netflix. Netflix has created a series of flat tops and higher lows. And uh, earlier we talked about that a, uh, an ascending triangle gives you the aspect of a measured move. It's crazy that uh, this the measured move pattern on Netflix is calling for it to, to rally another on a breakout that over a period of time, it could rally another $200 per share. So those are some uh, interesting, you know, the, the bullish upside patterns that we're watching closely in that bullish ascending triangle pattern. Yeah, interesting. On, on, on Netflix then, I mean, is, is this a, a shorter term move or... or I mean, I guess in part that Netflix trend is being fueled by this idea that obviously everyone's spending more time at home. Uh, streamers in general uh, have, have moved up quite nicely uh, since, since the middle of March. I wonder whether we should expect a similar, similar valuation in a few months' time or whether this is actually a shorter-term peak that, that, that will come, come down uh, in, a, in a month or so. That's a wonderful question. You know, it uh, hasn't proven that it's taken out the upside. Uh, what our uh, what our game plan is is uh, let's just go back to the example. I know Netflix is not at a hundred dollars a share, but just say the the top line of any asset was at a hundred dollars. 
if it breaks out above that, we want to be long. But then the trading strategy, uh, Hayden, would be then is to set a stop loss fairly tight below that 100 level in case that becomes a fake out move. But if, if it is a bullish uh, breakout, we want to be long. And uh, um, just I know we're getting close, you know, in time, but uh, gold created one of these patterns a couple of years ago to where it had a series of flat tops and rising bottoms. And to our, our members, we shared that the measured move on gold was suggesting that gold uh, should run into resistance around the 1794 level. And so it's taken two full years uh, after the breakout. Uh, gold's uh, rallied close to 30% out of that pattern. And now we've met the measured move targeted upside objective. So uh, gold's been popular. I would suspect, if anything now, gold needs to catch its breath at these current levels uh, and back off a little before heading to much higher levels. Yeah, sure. And can I um, just uh, pick you up on the biotech point that you mentioned a, a moment ago? Um, obviously, we're seeing um, a positive trend there, uh, like you mentioned. Um, but I, 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 so I've read that short interest has uh, has been in the uh, forty nine billion range for most of the year. So huge short interest there, and actually biotech short sellers are down about two point eight billion uh, for the year so far. Um, so a, a similar question to my Netflix one, I suppose. What's your outlook for that sector in particular uh, for the the medium term, I suppose? So beyond this uh, short term uptick. Well, I, I think. Uh... I don't tend to look for, uh, we did a, a video to our customers how one of the the most costly uh, lessons that I've ever learned or that I've noticed people has cost them a lot of money is searching for uh, the why, W-H-Y, why things happen. Uh, because uh, as Benjamin Graham said, uh, you know, Hayden, Mr. Market's job is to fool the majority of the people the majority of the time. And so uh, the why is fascinating. These things could, could work. You know, like if biotech breaks to the upside, if I was searching for a why, I would say, well, it's probably because of this virus that a lot of money is flowing into this sector in trying to solve the world's health situation, right? You know, it's, it's pretty popular, you know, that's who's going to succeed in coming up, you know, with a potential solution, you know, uh, antibodies or a vaccine. So I think that could be why some relative strength. But if I could encourage anybody to do this, I, I've got a way because all of us, I think, internally, we have our own biases. It's just, it just happens. We're, we're human and we're normal and we have biases. And so one of the things that's been most productive for myself, Hayden, is in one of my pieces of software, I found a way to hide the name of what assets are. So I, I just look at chart patterns for what they are. And uh, then what I do is I, I have about 140 different assets that I look at the chart patterns and then I narrow them down to my favorite 10 or 15 say I really like this and and here's why and, and here would be my game plan and then one of the last things I do Hayden is I find out what the asset is yes yeah, sure. that helps me tremendously 
to see the pattern for what it is and to try to uh, reduce my own personal biases as much as possible. Because you know, we all have them, you know, and I don't care how long I've been around the block. We all have biases. You know, we see things certain yeah, ways. Yeah, I don't know. I, th I think you're completely right. Uh, re removing the name of the of the asset. I mean, I hear a lot of people talk about uh, human biases and trying to get to the true value of price uh, and sort of stripping out away uh, any biases and sort of external fundamental factors uh, but to actually hide the name of the asset isn't something I've heard before so that that's really interesting um, but I wanted uh, to finish the episode with a quick fire question round so there's just going to be five questions um, all fairly uh, simple um, and you can answer in as little as one sentence or even one word if you like now you didn't tell me you're going to put me under this kind of pressure Hayden yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so the first one, hopefully, we'll, we'll start off easy. In in your opinion, what's the top? In, uh, sorry, the top mistake investors make? Getting caught up in headlines, thinking that you can use a bit of news. Because um, I'll say this: I used to express concerns to Sir John. You know, uh, I, I express my bias or whatever, and so Sir John would say, "Chris, do you know a secret?" that the majority of the most powerful people in the world don't know. And every time all I could ever say Hayden was no, I don't. And he says, so if you don't know a secret, then the news that you're seeing is most likely already built into the price. And so that's a longer answer than you probably wanted, but that's why I think getting caught up in the news can be really costly to your bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Some great advice. The second question then, where do you go for your trading insights? Uh, you know, the, there was, there's some really good trading books of a long time ago. Um, Ralph Ackerman and Pura is a, a pioneer in this, uh, this business. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that I've learned so much from is a gentleman by the name of John Murphy, and he can be still found on stock Twitter stock charts frequently john's got a, a lot of books a very humble guy learned a lot from john bollinger mm. yeah that's interesting um that's actually uh, a book that's been uh, brought up by a previous guest i believe uh, another technical an uh, analyst in the name of trevor neal um so that's really interesting you picked that one out as well um my third question then would be is is there a most memorable moment from your career so far is there one that particularly sticks in the mind oh it's uh, I guess Warren Buffett named his company Hayden after one of his biggest mistakes. And uh, Berkshire Hathaway was something that he did. He made a big investing mistake. And so the part of the reason I said getting caught up in the news um, in the early 1980s, I was uh, going, uh, getting married, uh, wanting to go on a honeymoon. Uh, we're going to go to Disney uh, World. And uh, so I had some money set aside for the honeymoon and, and I thought I had the world by the tail and technology was doing well and Fidelity had uh, these new select funds. And one of them was Fidelity Select Technology and uh, uh, that thing had done well. And so this is where I say, don't get caught up in the news. I made that mistake. I got caught up in the news. I put all of my honeymoon money in this Fidelity Select Technology Fund and I'm going to make my honeymoon all the better. And next thing I knew, in uh, probably a hundred days, I was down twenty-five percent. So I was 
uh, lucky that we made it to Motel 6, much less Disneyland after that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah, that sounds like that one particularly stung. Um, so uh, just two more then. Uh, uh, firstly, the top tip for your younger self. Great question. Top tip. Uh, be patient. Don't force trades. Uh, keep the long-term uh, perspective in mind and uh, do as as quality a job as you can of trading against the majority of emotional opinions. Great. Uh, so final question then. Uh, I wonder what, what gets you mentally ready as, as part of your morning routine? I'm usually up uh, 4.35 in the morning. Um, as I'm, I'm, I'll be 63 this summer. This is my 40th year in the business, but I'm very passionate about it, Hayden. I, I love it. I don't have any problem getting out of bed. Um, I, I look at this as a giant game of strategy, you know, just trying to figure out the world and figure out emotions. And so I, I find it fascinating, but you know, like many of us potentially in the quarantine, uh, a lot of people around the world have binged, you know, movies or they kept watching a series. I kind of look at the markets, you know, Hayden is just one giant binge movie that never ends, you know? And so I'm always fascinated for, for the next chapter. It's just, I, 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 I love, I'm very passionate about this, trying to figure things out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, that brings us uh, to the end of the episode. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the great job you do, Hayden. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.